If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. One of the biggest challenges facing historians who study slavery is finding sources that can give us insights on the experiences of the enslaved people themselves. But the historian Sean Wallace is working on a project that looks at familiar sources in a new way. In the Fugitive Slave Database, he's compiled advertisements for escaped enslaved people in the American South to see what they can tell us about those who made a bid for freedom. I spoke to Sean to find out more. Thank you very much for joining me today, Sean. So I wanted to speak to you about a project that you've been working on at the University of Bristol. So it's a fascinating project called the Fugitive Slave Database. Can you tell us a bit about the database, what it consists of and what your aims with it are? Sure. Well, thank you, firstly, for uh, inviting me along uh, this morning to talk about the project. It actually began back when I was doing my PhD several years ago, and I finished it in 2017-18. But as part of the uh, doctoral project was creating this database, which is it's unique. It's one of a kind. Um, There are now similar databases uh, out there. And really the project set out with quite a broad uh, aim, which was to effectively build a socio-economic, socio-cultural profile of fugitives uh, in Maryland and Georgia during the early national period. Uh, The reason for that is it had never been done before. Um, so basic questions such as who were the fugitives, how did their fugitivity look? Um, that was really how the project started and it sort of built um, over the years. Uh, and at Bristol now, uh, we have students actually working on 
uh, on the database and, and using it as well to form their own projects. So. so the database is made up of adverts, right, for escaped enslaved people. Can you tell us a bit about these adverts? So where did they appear and what details did they include? Sure. It's a good question. So the uh, advertisements themselves were issued by primarily slaveholders, slaveholding men and women. Um, but there is uh, people that, you know, were estate administrators, for example, issued. But but generally speaking, the, the purpose of the ad was to uh, inform the public that a fugitive um, from slavery uh, had escaped. Uh, and then to facilitate recapture. At times there's obviously, um, which I'm sure we'll go into, but if we take that as a, the kind of general principle that, that that's what they're uh, all about. Um, the first ad, um, this was something that I actually found during my PhD. Um, and it was one of those ones where I started out and said, well, when, when was the first one? And I couldn't find an answer um, to that. So after much searching, uh, I found uh, and dated it to 1705 uh, in the Boston newsletters. So quite so, early then. Yeah, yeah, very early. Yeah, and uh, it was actually um, John Campbell who was a Scotsman, who was a postmaster at one point and who was behind the Boston newsletter. Uh, the advertisement appears there, uh, and it's for an African fugitive and a Native American fugitive who have escaped together. The ad looks very different to what we see later on in the 1700s and 1800s, but um, by definition, it is a, a fugitive uh, slave ad. Um, so we see them really from 1705 all the way through. I think the last one I could date was to 1864. Mm -hmm. um, after that, uh, advertisements do appear, but they're very careful not to use the word slave. So they are there. Um, and for all intents and purposes, they probably are fugitive uh, slave ads, but um, but you know, as a historian, we have to be careful not to, mm. to, to guess effectively. So, so that, um, in terms of what they include, but they, they range quite considerably in what kind of details they have. Um, you know, it can go from a really broad, uh, a really brief description even, uh, or physical appearance, um, maybe some details around the uh, act of escape itself. But at times, uh, you know, it may list, for example, all the clothes that an enslaved person took with them. It may speculate on their whereabouts, um, their destination, uh, if they, you know, escaped with any family members. So we we have this this source that is a slaveholder construct, which, you know, uh, there's obviously a, a reluctance there. Or there has been in the past to use these types of sources. But I think we need to, you know, as long as we're not using them for that original purpose, and we use them to kind of unearth these um, stories that are within them, then um, they're, they're you know, so valuable for us as, as historians. So what are you hoping, hoping that you can unearth from these adverts? Why are they so interesting to a historian? Sure. So for, for me, uh, you know, I, I think there was the, the purpose of the PhD, which was, was creating this profile. So who were the fugitives of Maryland? Who were the fugitives of Georgia? And I wanted to inflict that upon the historiography and to provide these profiles that um, would would enrich the field. Um, they would be the the first of their type. But but ultimately as a historian, what I'm interested in are, are individuals uh, and humans. And um, even now, years and years after beginning that project, I'm still um, you know trying to get to grips with what, what was fugitivity, what motivated it, what motivated individuals to escape. And the good thing with the database is that you know I can um, I can compare uh, I can compare stories I can I, I can find trends but ultimately you know every every escape is unique um, 
And so that that's what keeps me uh, really interested in, in this kind of research. Within the context that you're looking at, so Maryland and Georgia, are there any recurring trends that we can identify about what type of enslaved people escaped? For example, do we have more men being advertised? Do we have more women? Do we have any sense of whether they were young or old, whether they had escaped on their own or in a group, for example? I'd say very broadly speaking, we know that escape occurs every day. Um, we know also that escape occurs and sometimes isn't advertised. Um, so in many ways, the the advertisement itself is is sort of the the tip of the iceberg. Um, it's a good question in terms of um, some of the, the dynamics we can see when we compare. Um, there are uh, usually, I mean, I think it's about 85% of ads that uh, I, I looked at in both Maryland and, and Georgia uh, were for males. And do, do we get a sense that's because more men were escaping or that men were, for example, more more valuable? Both, I'd say no, um, only in the sense that... Um, in the sense that the uh, there, there certainly we can say that the men are being advertised more for they're making the uh, they're making the ads effectively, but that doesn't mean that the um, you know uh, female slaves aren't escaping every day as well. It may be that the the fugitivity patterns are somewhat different, so potentially shorter escapes okay. uh, that, that then don't make it to uh, advertisement. But um, you know I. We'll be very careful here because you know it, it is absolutely a minefield because um, we're talking here about uh, advertised fugitivity and in terms of that, then absolutely men are uh, dominate um, that. But I think this is one of the the big problems within the historiography is that we could we could make an assumption. In many ways, we see that kind of trend, and we should actually be then asking more questions, and we should be saying, well, well why is that? Um, why are more men uh, advertised? In terms of the values uh, and things. What you can do with these ads is is to establish, um, you know, average rewards, for example, and then what I tend to do with that as a as a historian is I, I use average rewards, and then I can look either side of that. So I can I can look at, for example, if if let's say the average reward was thirty five dollars, forty dollars, and someone's then advertised for one hundred and fifty, suddenly that raises a really important question, and I start to explore um, that type of thing. So. Um, so yeah, you can use all the, in the the information there. Sounds like there's myriad paths of investigation here, aren't there? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And um, you know, one of the one of the pleasures of uh, working on these working with these sources and the database is I get to explore these, but I now have students exploring them as well. And um, you know, for example, um, I've had a student recently who um, was again, it, it was one of those trends. They saw someone that was being advertised for quite relentlessly for six months, uh, every single day, uh, quite a high reward as well. Um, and they started to explore, well, the skill set of that enslaved person. And, you know, starting to look at, for example, comments that, you know, they could play musical instruments um, and what the significance of that might be. Did it impact on the reward value, for example? The other thing I think is worth, worth pointing out as well is that you know, the reward value, of course, it projects some form of uh, value. But what that value is as well is really complex because what seems to be the case at times is, you know, uh, enslavers are, you know, they, they want to project control. They want to project power. Um, and it is one of the ways in which once someone has escaped, that they can do that. So well, that is something I wanted to ask you about, that the motivations for posting these adverts. Generally, do we have a sense of whether what the the slaveholders wanted was the person 
returned to to work for them again for their purposes or did they want to find them for a punitive reason to punish them and and to deter others from trying to escape i think again a, co- a combination of all i i think you know the we we can never definitively know but i would say looking at the the descriptions within you know it was actually i was given a paper once and someone raised this exact point which was one of the ads that i was shown they said well there's not actually a huge amount of detail in there and actually in terms of the the physical description a lot of people could could match um that description does it raise the possibility that this is nothing about actually capturing people this is making a statement and that had a really profound impact actually on, on my own research and and the way that i looked at these sources and I think I think there 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 certainly is in some ads there's an indication I guess that um, there's enough of a description there um, in terms of uh, the the physical description there's speculation about where the person may be there's usually you know potentially a, a high reward um, so you would maybe make the assumption there that that the person is you know there's a, a real effort to to get them back um, but at the same time um, you know we see some ads that you know will include uh, you know wanted dead or alive at the bottom and at that stage you're you're dealing with something a bit different there um, it seems to be just about control and and having control of someone's fate effectively from from afar. Um, so yeah, I think there's I think there's different motivations there. But so you mentioned there that some of the ads they had to be fairly vague in the details because maybe that person didn't have a huge amount of identifying characteristics. And of course, this was you know an age before photography. Do we have any sense at how successful these ads were at, at having people found, and how likely you were to be able to make a successful escape? Sure. Um, so I think historiographically. Uh, I think it's widely accepted that that most, um, certainly not all, but but many escape attempts ended in failure. Um, it, it's just such a difficult uh, thing to do, you know, to to escape and then to survive. Um, however, uh, there obviously, as we know from the the later the antebellum uh, narratives, for example, that many uh, enslaved persons did successfully escape and reach places like Canada, for example. Uh, in terms of using the ads themselves, uh, it's really difficult to know whether uh, they were successful. One of the ways in which you potentially can, uh, and again, you have to be really careful when you do this, but I've had instances in the database where I'm confident that someone who's advertised, um, you know, after the initial ad, so maybe several years later, that's one of the joys of the database. I can I can track individuals. So there's definitely cases where the insinuation would be that if this person's been advertised as a runaway again, having run away again, then they've obviously uh, been captured, come back. Whether the ad itself uh, was what led to the capture, that's difficult to say, but it certainly raises a possibility. So the idea with these ads was that members of the public, is this right, would would be on the lookout and identify people. Were there anybody that was professionally involved in trying to retrieve enslaved people that had escaped? Yeah, sure. So there's professional, um, what you call a, a quote unquote slave catcher. So one of the things actually that I, one of the things I found when I was doing our research in, in the US was, uh, uh, so advertisements, of course, that we're talking about here would largely appear in local newspapers, but they may also appear as a, like a, a circular as well, something that's basically attached to a wall or a door uh, you know, like a wanted dead or alive poster they associate with the old West, for example. Um, and I actually found one of those that clearly someone, uh, a professional, had had taken off the wall and actually scribbled on the back of it, 
and posted it back to the person. And they were trying to basically strike a deal. So sort of saying, I've, I've, I can see from your advertisement that you are uh, searching for this fugitive. Uh, why don't you employ me to do that? Uh, and it started a, a dialogue there between, but but absolutely there there are, um, you know, I, I think generally speaking, the, the the public, particularly in the the period that I look at, so I'm interested really in the early national period, so 1790s, uh, early 1800s, etc. Uh, it's a period in which newspapers, uh, the number of newspapers is increasing quite uh, substantially, uh, and more and more Americans are are reading newspapers, and so within that, these these advertisements are really, really important. And the more newspapers, the better print distribution networks, the better transportation networks in terms of uh, transporting uh, newspapers, then the further this news is traveling. And suddenly fugitivity is, is you know, becoming increasingly uh, difficult. Uh, it's always difficult, but but certainly so the conditions are, are, are even more challenging. There is, I think, really importantly, um, uh, a fear. There is a, a, a societal fear uh, of insurrection, of uprising. Uh, amongst enslaved uh, people, so I think, I think again, when we're reading these advertisements, the word "in" is really important here because is it sort of preying upon the fears of the public? You know, does it say enough that that creates the the conditions that that makes recapture uh, favourable? I'm I'm interested by that idea you mentioned there of this being a form of insurrection, because something that you you've written about is how we could see escaping as a form of resistance. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Uh, fugitivity for a long time has been seen as an act of resistance, so it's it's basically a reaction to conditions within uh, enslavement. So it may be, uh, for example, uh, fear of uh, fear of punishment. It may be in protest at the sale of a family member or a loved one. It may be, uh, again, a reaction to labor conditions. So in all those situations, we'd say it was an act of resistance. So you're resisting the system. However, um, I think, again, historiographically, we're, we're starting to really question that now because it seems that we, we're really missing something if we think it's only ever an act of resistance. Um, so my kind of latest research is looking at fugitivity, uh, you know, as, as an expression of self-actualization of empowerment, trying to focus more on the pull than, than the push. We're trying to complicate what fugitivity is a lot more mm. than, you know, even, you know, you, you probably have, have seen it before, but the amount of people that would describe it as running away. I wanted to ask you about this because throughout this conversation, you've described this as fugitivity and escape rather than saying runaways or why are you choosing that language here? Yeah, really deliberately, um, because certainly there were fugitives who ran away. Uh, they absconded on foot, um, but there are also fugitives who escaped in boats and canoes and, uh, you know, on, on the backs of horses and escaped individually and with their families. And uh, so I think it's, I think, again, it starts with, uh, it starts with the word. Um, I think we really have to be careful. So when we say a runaway, uh, immediately it evokes a, a, an image in our head. And, uh, you know, that image is, is partially true for sure, but, um, but it's a bit more complex than that. So I just, yeah, very deliberately uh, using that term. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, it's going to be for this this exciting future research, and digital humanities projects, and you know local conversations, academic conversations, um, wider public conversations. We need to be talking, and we are, which is the most important thing.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. So you mentioned earlier that some people made it, for example, to Canada. Was there a sense of how far away you'd have to get to be able to make a successful escape? For example, were these adverts just circulated in local newspapers or state newspapers, or did they go beyond that? Certainly, uh, local newspapers, primarily within the vicinity of where the person escaped. Um, so the, the ad would be circulated there. Uh, it may also be circulated in... Uh, any any states, um, you know, fugitivity tends to be cross-border. So uh, again, they may be circulated a little bit further than the uh, the local. I think I think again, it raises a really important question because you know you can you can make it across a national uh, boundary or border. In the U.S., we see things like the fugitive slave law of the early 1790s, and then again, uh, 1850, it's revised. So again, this law basically. Um, very generally speaking, allows uh, fugitives to be legally hunted uh, and returned uh, to uh, the enslavers. So in many ways, even you know, getting across a border, uh, that's problematic because you may find that uh, you either have to go back across, as is the case with some of the more kind of famous antebellum uh, stories that we know. So people like uh, Henry Bibb, um, Josiah Henson, uh, Harriet Tubman, they return back across. And of course, when you return back for family, then uh, there's a very real chance um, that, that you may be recaptured again. But then I think it also raises the question in terms of the the, the psychological impact of, of slavery and how far, how far away until you felt safe. Uh, I would imagine you never 
feel safe because I think that fear of recapture uh, is always there. I think that lives on with you. Um, so. It's been kind of a, an undercurrent throughout this conversation, but just to to really reiterate some of the the dangers and the challenges for people who did escape, what are some of the key challenges that you would come across? My book actually begins with Josiah Henson. Um, so Josiah Henson uh, is born born in Maryland, but you know goes, goes through life, has opportunities to escape, doesn't. Uh, eventually, he decides to escape alongside his family. Uh, and so it's well planned, but what we see across that entire, I think it's a month in total. So they, they travel from Kentucky uh, to, to Canada. And what we see are uh, quite immediately the psychological pressures. So just the sheer enormity of what uh, is ahead. Uh, they're traveling at night, for example, guided by uh, the North Star. Um, so again, there's in terms of the kind of navigational challenges in itself is really difficult. Then you have, I guess, the the constant fear of recapture, um, hunger, uh, the weather. And there's also this fear that, that effectively any stranger that you encounter may be full. <laughs> they, may, they may return you motivated by the promise of a reward. They may decide to, uh, to effectively sell you back into slavery uh, for a bounty. So I think there's physical challenges. I think there's psychological challenges. Uh, I think the sheer enormity of, of any act of fugitivity just psychologically is so important to to appreciate. It's tragic, of course, if if it ends in failure and someone's returned back. But but there's something psychologically to even embark on that that journey. And I think that's where we've still a lot of resource to try and to try and uh, understand that. And the narratives that we do have available of people who made successful escapes. What were some of the factors that really helped them? I think. Determination, firstly, uh, I think uh, luck. I think sometimes is uh, is important, but then we start to see practical skills like literacy, for example. Um, so this is something that uh, you know, instructing uh, an enslaved person to read and write in most, not all, but most uh, of the southern states is illegal. In Maryland, where Frederick Douglass escapes from, it's not, um, and he does become literate, but. Again, I think even in that situation, it's worth pointing out that there's certainly not a favorable attitude toward uh, enslaved persons learning, uh, even in that state where there's no formal law against it. In places like Georgia, it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, to prohibit both uh, the instruction of enslaved persons in reading and writing. Um, why is it important? Why is it a skill mm. that they... Why would that help you on an yeah, escape? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I, I look at this from... Uh, two different points. I think there's a practical point. So being able to read potentially your own advertisement, uh, mm. to know that you're being hunted is really important. Basically, you know who they're looking for or what they're looking for in terms of how you're dressing, how you're behaving, how you're, uh, where you're expecting to go, and you can change course. So I think that's certainly one aspect. There's also the question as whether, uh, to, to what extent, I guess, that being able to read actually motivates the decision in the first place to, to run away or to abscond or to, you know, uh, however you, you want to frame it. But in a very, um, another kind of practical way, I guess, being able to forge your own pass, uh, to forge your own um, certificate. This is the big fear of the enslavers. So any... Uh, enslaved person when they travel, they need to carry with them written documentation signed by uh, the enslaver, basically saying, uh, you know, where they're destined uh, for, uh, how long they're permitted to travel. Basically, what we see is enslaved persons empowering themselves by becoming literate. They can forge those. They can write their own. 
And that is what happens uh, in many cases. So uh, things like literacy here are, are really important. So listeners at home, they might have heard of the Underground Railroad. Um, they may, maybe they've heard of Harriet Tubman, who was associated with it, or perhaps um, read the Colston Whitehead book, which has been really successful in recent years. But could you tell us a bit about the reality of the Underground Railroad, how, how it operated and how big it was as well? Again, it's a, it's a really difficult uh, one to say. I think I, I think I, I sort of always spend a good few weeks at the start of any term trying to... Uh, just to to you know let the students know that what we're looking at here isn't a railroad. I think that's first and foremost. It's not a railroad, but what we're looking at is a really complex network of uh, safe houses of individuals who are um, facilitating basically fugitives and, and fugitivity. It basically spans most uh, of the U.S. There's networks leading to Canada, going out to the south, even leaving the East Coast as well. So it's a really vast uh, network, and of course. There are fugitives who uh, may engage it for part of the way, um, uh, you know, uh, and others who are uh, quite reliant on it. So we know, for example, Harriet Tubman crosses back a few times into Maryland to uh, help her own. Yeah, family, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And so, um, so in that situation, um, you know, you're you're basically seeing the the railroad being used um, to to its full effect. But yeah, understanding that it's a network there of that is trying to uh, to facilitate the escape uh, of fugitives, and that it is everywhere. And if obviously it's all very hush hush, but do we know who was involved in the underground railroad network? Was it? formerly enslaved people who had escaped? Was it white abolitionists? Was it a combination of the two? Yeah, so a combination of uh, both. Um, so certainly we, um, uh, you know, from the, the antebellum narratives, we, we know that there is involvement there with um, uh, persons that were formerly enslaved uh, who um, successfully escaped. Um, but also, yeah, white abolitionists, um, you know, really uh, anyone that, that had that kind of anti-slavery sentiment um, uh, may may prove to be a um, you know a, an asset during the escape. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, a combination of uh, combination of both. Do we have any sense of how that network would connect up with the very first part of the journey? If you escaped from, for example, a plantation, how would you find your way to the Underground Railroad? Would it be that you'd have to already know somebody who would approach you? Or to be honest, I've not come across a huge amount of. Um, uh, you know, first-hand testimonies of this, but the ones that I have, it tends to be, um, you know, m maybe formerly enslaved persons who have been able to, uh, to, to basically become free, or who are now free persons, whether they've purchased um, their freedom, whether they've uh, been manumitted. Um, you know, there's there's a whole load of ways in which you could then get free free status. But I think that knowledge is really important, whether it be chance encounter or whether it be you know something else that's going on there. Certainly, uh, I think I think people are talking about these types of things, um, talking about the railroad. Um, maybe not explicitly, um, but they're certainly talking about it. And I think at that stage, just it, it may begin with uh, you know a, an individual who may assist. If you decide to escape, uh, you have friends in this particular location. Uh, it does seem to be quiet conversations that are that are uh, ongoing. And I guess as well, what's worth remembering is is that if you sort of, let's say you make it to the first safe house, um, that when you get there, then you're relying on someone else, you know, the next part of the journey. But, and amongst all that, you know, you're still, 
uh, grappling with the psychological and physical pressures off that escape. And in some respects, you're trusting or having to trust strangers that, you know, you, you don't know what's motivating them, for example. So um, so I think ultimately the, the agency here is with the enslaved persons. The networks are there, but to even engage the, the underground railroad, I think is... Again, we have to be, uh, you know, focusing on the fugitive there. Yeah. So to focus on the fugitive, sure. you you said earlier that one of your biggest interests about this um, project that you're working on is that you can track individuals. And I wonder if you could just share with us any particular adverts or stories of individual people that really stuck with you. Sure. So the 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 one that I always uh, I always use on the kind of conference scene is a uh, is a is an advertisement for an enslaved individual called Profit, and I I tend to get my students even to to analyze this ad because in this it, it, we we have admissions for example of Profit being literate, um, Profit is uh, suspected uh, of changing uh, names and clothes and uh, of escape into certain locations. And behind this description, you can just see this remarkable uh, individual. Only, I think, one or two advertisements appears for profit as well. So again, it's raising the, the, the prospect of the, that he probably has successfully escaped. And this is quite a, um, a desperate attempt um, by the, the slaveholder. And the other one uh, in particular is uh, uh, an advertisement in which uh, the slaveholder is uh, he's really surprised that this uh, this this enslaved man has escaped, despite the fact that, in his view, he was receiving really favourable treatment. Uh, he wasn't having to labour hard. He was being provided with nice clothing. He was allowed to travel with his uh, with his his legal master um, uh, on errands, for example. He was allowed to visit different towns and cities and. And then he's really surprised that this guy wants to to live life on his own terms, and we see this quite a considerable uh, advertisement that's uh, published and, and quite a significant reward as well. And the theme of it is effectively that this this fugitive is is um, ungrateful, and he should know better. And you see, uh, yeah, things like the 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 paternalism that the slaveholder is trying to project to the public um, of the favorable treatment of, you know, I'm, I'm a kind enslaver. And it's just remarkable. And in those situations, I think you, when you start to read against the slaveholder description, uh, you can see the desperation because the individuals that they're describing have long decided that they're not going to put up with this anymore. They're going to escape. They're going to live life on their own terms. They're, you know, they're, they're their own individuals. Uh, they don't want to live with an imposed identity anymore. Uh, they want to be their own people. And so, yeah, I think those are the, those are the two that I always, I always go back to. It strikes me having this conversation about this database that it must be as frustrating as it is rich in that you get these tiny glimmers of of people and individuals and and incredibly dramatic and and brave life stories but you never really can find out what happens that must be so frustrating yeah yeah it is i i like to so i i guess characterize them as little historical snapshots um and i think what i guess over time i've grown to appreciate a little bit more is that oftentimes i don't know what happens before and i don't know what happens after but i have this little moment that i 
um, that, that I get a window into. Uh, and I can tell a lot in that window. Um, but uh, yeah, it's frustrating. Um, you, you know, there, there's always the opportunities to follow some of these stories into the archives, um, into uh, newspapers, into uh, plantation records, etc. But yeah, for the most part, I, I sort of lose the story at some point, which is frustrating. <laughs> I don't know. I feel in a privileged position that I that I can, even if it's even if it's a snapshot, that it's in the database, and that may be someone's loved one, um, and they might one day search the database and find that person. And the reason they know about them isn't because uh, a slaveholder wrote about them; it's because the fugitive made them write about them. Finally, I just wanted to ask you as a person working in this field who, so since you started working on this project, how you've seen the field of studying slavery and the lives of enslaved people change and what you think some of the most exciting developments in that field are? I think from my own point of view, I think the uh, the use of advertisements um, is certainly increasing. Um, there is uh, quite a few databases now uh, as well that are uh, appearing that do similar things. Um, they are advertisement databases. Um, and I think what we can see and what I'm struck by is is even the, the sheer uh, amount of digital humanities projects exploring different aspects of, of slavery, not just in the US, uh, in Britain, all around the world. And we're all sort of contributing to that that, that wider conversation, that you know, broader knowledge and understanding of uh, you know the connectivity of of transatlantic slavery, and you know we we can tell parts of it, um, but uh, it's going to be for this this exciting future research and digital humanities projects and you know local conversations, academic conversations, um, wider public conversations. We need to be talking, and we are, which is the most important thing. That was Sean Wallace from the University of Bristol. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.